I would like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Samantha Hill. She earned her degree from the Medical College of Wisconsin in 2003. She went on to complete a pediatric residency at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio in 2006, a dermatology residency at St. Louis University Hospital in 2009, and a fellowship in pediatric dermatology at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin in 2010. Dr. Hill treats a wide variety of pediatric skin disorders and specializes in the treatment of hyperhidrosis. She became interested in treating hyperhidrosis because, like many of her patients, it was something she began to have a problem with when she was a teenager herself. In 2010, Dr. Hill started a pediatric hyperhidrosis clinic in the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin to treat pediatric patients suffering from excessive sweating. The clinic has been very successful and more than 100 patients treated in the first year. And just six weeks ago, she moved from Wisconsin to Austin, Texas, where she spent almost just about four weeks total of living there and two weeks traveling. Uh, she is uh, practicing pediatric dermatology in Austin, Texas, and she will be starting a new hyperhidrosis clinic in Austin starting in January 2012. So please help me in welcoming Dr. Hill. Well, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. The, uh, the intro made a lot more sense um, when I wrote it just to be given before the hyperhidrosis lecture. Um, but uh, we're going to talk first about uh, some adolescent dermatology, if I can get that going. Um, so my first lecture is going to be uh, called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, Cutaneous Sequelae of Adolescent Risk-Taking. I have no financial or commercial relationships to disclose, is the first disclosure. And the second disclosure is actually that we're not going to talk about sex, drugs, or rock and roll during the presentation. Uh, but the, the catchphrase, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, was one that we used in pediatrics to help remind us uh, what we needed to ask adolescents about during preventive medicine, during their, their checkups. Uh, teenagers and, and adolescents are going to do a lot of really silly, some really stupid things. Um, and some of them are going to have no real consequences at all. But some of them are things that, that may affect them later on in life. And, and sort of our, our role as providers is to help step in when we can tell that they're headed down the wrong path. So the, uh, a small outline of the talk. First, we're going to start with talking about tanning, and then going to transition uh, to talking about body art, um, which encompasses tattoos and piercings, and then just real briefly at the end about some grooming practices that can lead to problems. Yeah, it took me, it took me a, little, a little while the first time I saw this slide to actually even notice the kid, because I was so, uh, I was so struck by the, the woman's skin. So for the purposes of this lecture, when I refer to tanning, for the most part, it's going to refer to, to ultraviolet or UV tanning. Um, tanning beds emit both UVA and UVB uh, irradiation in a ratio that's designed to enhance the tanning process. UVA wavelengths are longer and they penetrate deeper into the skin. They're responsible for what we think of uh, photoaging, uh, wrinkling, thinning of the skin, loss of elasticity, and they also contribute a great deal to tanning. UVB rays are shorter, they penetrate more superficially in the skin, and they're responsible for giving us most sunburns. 
The standard uh, tanning beds emit a ratio of about 97% UVA and 3% UVB, although uh, some beds have a, a little bit of a different ratio. And these tanning beds with their different ratio emit uh, a spectrum of UV radiation that is equivalent to about 10 to 15 times higher than the midday sun. A little bit, a very little bit about the science of tanning. Um, so immediate pigment darkening is most prominent with UVA exposure and involves uh, oxidation and redistribution of melanin that's already present in the skin. UVB tanning is more delayed uh, onset, and that results from uh, new melanin synthesis. It, as most prominent, occurs about three days after exposure to the sun. Tanning bed use does not produce a significant epidermal thickening, um, which is another component of delayed tanning that comes from UVB. And it's really that increased thickness of the epidermis that is the photoprotective part of, um, of someone who's tanned to protect them from from further exposure. And so when people are tanning and they have a much higher proportion of their tan from UVA, they really don't have that photo protection from the next exposure to sun, which is a really big deal when you think about the base tan concept that uh, a lot of people uh, think of when they, when they think of going for a tan. You know, I'm going on a cruise, so I'm gonna go get my base tan in the tanning bed so that I don't burn and I don't uh, have a problem, you know, when I have real exposure. So a little bit about tanning behaviors. Um, on average day, almost two million people uh, visit a tanning salon. That's um, two to three million teenagers per year, uh, 30 million people per year. Most of them are girls and women. A really high percentage of them are uh, 16 to 29 year olds. Um, in one study uh, of adolescents, they reported that 24% had ever visited a tanning salon and that 10% uh, used them regularly. This is actually lower than the overall prevalence in adults, which is sort of encouraging, but somewhere along the, the way between adulthood or between adolescence and adulthood, they're, they're actually increasing their, their use. Um, and in a study of more than 10,000 adolescents, 35% uh, of the teenage girls were, were using tanning beds. The Midwest has the highest prevalence of tanning bed use, followed by the South. Uh, the West actually has a high prevalence of tanning, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's mostly non-UV tanning, so spray tanning and things like that. So the, the culture of beauty in that, the standards of beauty, you know, are not necessarily different. They're just going about it a different way. Uh, that is a little bit unfortunate in that a lot of um, pictures and press that come out of Hollywood still depict the, and the concept of beauty from a, a tan, you know, which people in the, the Midwest and South are going about getting uh, with actual UV radiation. Despite a significant media focus on the dangers of tanning, uh, a study in 2010 showed that many adults really still haven't gotten the message. 13% um, uh, and 4% of men in this study um, said that they, they uh, didn't think that tanning was a risk factor for skin cancer. And that was among patients both who tanned and those who didn't tan. Parents, uh, parents of your teenagers are tanning. Um, it's more common in younger parents, um, age 27 to 40. The rates of parents tanning has also increased in the past decade, which is unfortunate. 
These parents have reported that 60% of them have reported an adverse event, such as a burn from their tanning, but 85% of them report that they, they intend to continue to tan uh, despite having problems. It's a really big deal because there are a multitude of studies showing that uh, parental attitudes towards tanning uh, are a really big influence on uh, teenage and child's uh, attitudes towards tanning. So I, at one point I wondered what the, uh, how easy it was going to be to, to find tanning in my area. So on a Saturday afternoon, I sat down at the computer um, and I typed in tanning salon Milwaukee. And in 0.28 seconds, I had 55,500 results. Uh, now, I have to admit that I didn't specify UV tanning or spray tanning. So some of the 55,000, uh, I, I will grant you, were, were spray tan salons, uh, but the vast majority were not. I then looked in the, uh, the yellow pages, which is only online now, I guess, um, and there were 122 options uh, for tanning. Most of those, 77 of those, were actual tanning salons, but another big percentage were uh, beauty salons or, or other sort of beauty salons and spas that had tanning facilities. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I could tan at my gym. I think my gym has a tanning bed. And I looked at the, uh, the fitness clubs in the Milwaukee area, and the vast majority of them were uh, were advertising very, very thoroughly on their website, actually, you know, encouraging their, their patrons to visit the tanning salon. And that's really unfortunate because, you know, that sort of continues to, to put together the, associate, the association between having a tan and being healthy, which is, as, as you know, completely, completely not the case. Uh, there's one uh, statistic uh, that uh, I found multiple times uh, there was a report of 116 major U.S. cities, um, and 76% of teenagers lived within two miles of a tanning facility. Uh, it also reported that there were more tanning facilities than McDonald's or Starbucks. So access is everywhere. There is some legislation um, on tanning, uh, which is a good thing. Um, it's been recommended by the World Health Organization um, that tanning be completely banned for minors. Some European countries have, have uh, started to do this, um, France uh, being one of them. Vancouver has a recent ban. Brazil has a total ban on the sale and use of all uh, UV tanning beds, um, which is, I think, pretty much this, the most strenuous uh, regulations that I uh, was able to come across. In the states, however, tanning is, is regulated on a state-by-state -state level. Some states do a pretty good job. Um, some, some states do no job at all, unfortunately. 18 states have no legislation at all. Of the 32 states that do have legislation, 31 require parental permission uh, for their minors to tan, but only, uh, only 23 of them require that the, pa the parent be present in person, which you know, is a little bit silly. I mean, you hand the kid a permission slip, they run around the corner, their best friend signs it, and they come back, and they, they start their tanning. Um, California uh, recently signed into law uh, a ban on tanning for minors under the age of 18. That'll go into effect in January of 2012. Uh, that should be applauded, absolutely. Uh, the, the next closest uh, have been Wisconsin uh, with a, uh, 
uh, a ban under the age of 16 and Texas with a ban under the age of 16 and a half, um, which you know, have been good numbers. They've, they've been okay, um, but the, especially the Wisconsin you know, level of 16 years, I mean, that's been, that's been in place for a really long time. So they haven't been continuing to, to work towards it. They've sort of you know, rested on their laurels a little bit. So the big question, or a big question, is do the laws even work? Do they make a difference? And the answer is really easy, yes and no. Um, there have been a bunch of studies over the past five years that have looked at access of teenagers in states with and without uh, laws about tanning beds. And two of studies, um, mainly looking at Wisconsin, a lot of the studies have focused on Wisconsin because for a long time their laws were more, more, more strenuous than, than other states. One study had 70% and one had 77% rate of banning a 15-year-old from tanning. So, you know, they did okay. Should be 100%, but, you know, 75% is, is okay. Unfortunately, all of the other states that they looked at fared way, way worse. Uh, so the, this was really the best. Uh, recently, uh, there was a report of uh, a, a really small study that looked at 224 tanning beds um, in New York City. It wasn't 224 salons, just beds within uh, the city. And more than a third of them didn't have any, any warning signs, uh, which is actually against the law. I mean, federal regulations require that you have easily visible and posted by each bed warning signs about the dangers of tanning and the need to wear goggles and all of that. So the FDA doesn't... Um, it hasn't banned tanning, obviously, but it gives recommendations. And recommendations are better than nothing, but uh, they certainly haven't been shown to make uh, a huge difference. So one of the things that the FDA recommends is that tanning facilities are supposed to determine the Fitzpatrick skin type of somebody coming in to tan and use that to determine how long they should be able to go into the tanning bed. I mean, you can certainly see that without a medical background or without um, a certain level of education, it would be really easy to, to not get that right. Um, the FDA also recommends that someone who's a Fitzpatrick skin type 1 not tan at all. And certainly we know that plenty of people who are Fitzpatrick skin type 1 are allowed to tan. In a survey of tanning operators in New York City, 80% uh, of them reported that they thought that it was a fact that you could not get skin cancer from tanning. And another 75% reported that you couldn't get a sunburn from tanning. So clearly, the operators of the tanning beds and, and the people who are you know, checking in your kids at the front door are not, uh, are not up on the, the real information about tanning. We all know that there are a lot of dangers and risks associated with tanning. Recently. Uh, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is a subgroup, subgroup of the World Health Organization, rated ultraviolet radiation as a UV1 carcinogen, which is in the same class as nitrogen mustard gas, asbestos cigarettes, things that most people off the street would hear and know is something that's really very bad for you. Both non-melanoma and melanoma skin cancers have been related and linked to UV exposure and more than one million skin cancers are diagnosed annually. Thank goodness the majority of them are non-melanoma skin cancers, but research recently uh, tells us that a person's 
risk of melanoma increases by 75% if they uh, start use of tanning bed before the age of 35. I thought that was a really important number and a really easy number to use as a statistic when talking to your patients, so I bolded that one. The American Cancer Association estimates uh, around 70,000 new cases of melanoma in 2011. It's the second most common form of cancer in young adults aged 15 to 29 and the most common form uh, in patients aged 25 to 29. Rates of melanoma are increasing in the U.S. with young white women having almost a 4% increase annually in incidence uh, since 1992. The overall lifetime risk for white Americans is about 1 in 50, but that risk goes up exponentially with use of a tanning bed, almost 75% uh, more risk of having a melanoma with, with tanning bed use. It's not a cancer to take lightly, as you guys all know. Uh, it has almost a 14% mortality rate overall. So melanoma in adolescents is not necessarily the same thing as melanoma in adults. Um, Almost 80% of pediatric melanomas occur between the ages of 15 and 19, but there are some melanomas that occur in younger patients as well. There is an increasing incidence in pediatric melanoma as there is in adult melanoma, but most of this increase is in adolescent patients, not in the younger patients. Patients younger than 10 years of age have only had an increased rate of 1.4%, um, which in all honesty comes close to a rate that could be uh, explained by better uh, better pickups in physician offices and better diagnosis. Fortunately, the survival uh, rates in pediatric melanoma have also been increasing uh, as awareness has increased. The biologic similarity of pediatric melanomas to adult melanomas um, is more common in adolescents, uh, or I should say it's more similar in adolescent melanomas than in younger pediatric melanomas, and some of this probably reflects the environmental, uh, the environmental triggers that are associated with a lot of adult melanomas. Some of the differences that it's important to be aware of between uh, childhood melanoma and adult melanoma is that there's a female pre um, predominance in uh, adolescent and young patients, and there's also a higher incidence of nodular and amelanotic melanomas in younger patients. So again, uh, I have that, that same statistic because I think it's such an important one, uh, bolded in red. I do want to acknowledge that there are definitely other risk factors for melanoma uh, besides UV exposure, genetic, um, uh, genetic syndromes, family history, history of sunburns, lots of things that we know about. Uh, so I don't want to make light of those, uh, of those risk factors, um, just wanting to, to focus on UV radiation as one that is definitely a risk factor that is modifiable. It's something that we can change. And some of the others are things that are risk factors, but nothing that we can do about them because it's at least not, not yet. So why do people go tanning? Um, there's the base tan misconception that we, that we talked about before. Um, there's definitely a perceived increase in beauty in someone who has a tan, and a lot of that is is continued to be reinforced by Hollywood and the media. Uh, it takes a really long time to change that kind of social perception of beauty. Um, in, you know, a, a long time ago, 1700s, you know, it used to be very, very fashionable to be as pale as you could possibly be. And, you know, somewhere along the line, uh, that got, got changed and the people who were ostracized and, and you know, you couldn't be a lady if you had a tan because that certainly meant that you were, 
you were being exposed to things that you shouldn't be, and somewhere along the line that got completely switched around, and hopefully we can, we can turn that back. Uh, there's been shown to be almost an opioid-like dependency uh, with some patients who uh, have excessive tanning and, and uh, a feeling that they just, they, just can't, they just can't handle it, they can't go without tanning. Um, and, you know, tanorexic is, is a word that gets tossed around in the, in the media as well. But, um, I mean, it, you know, to some extent, there is some evidence that there, uh, there is this internal drive and, and um, a neurochemical reinforcement of the actual practice of tanning. Um, and then vitamin D, which is a, kind of a hot-button issue right now in all of dermatology, but definitely associated with sun and sun exposure and tanning exposure. So a little bit about the vitamin D dilemma. Um, vitamin D uh, is synthesized uh, after exposure to the skin. It's mainly in the UVB range. So all of the, the UVA, the vast majority of what they're getting out of a tanning bed is really not contributing to uh, their increase in vitamin D anyway. Uh, there's been a recent study that showed that most tanning beds emit enough UVB to increase someone's vitamin D but that increase plateaus out after only four tanning sessions of six minutes each. And I mean, we all know that anyone who visits a tanning salon, whether it's for vitamin D uh, increase or for uh, just increasing their tan for perceived beauty, I mean, they all go more than four sessions of six minutes each. Um, so it's, it really is not a valid, a valid rationale for tanning. Uh, also, Patients who frequent tanning beds most often, such as young white women, have a much lower incidence and a lower problem with having a low vitamin D. Uh, anyway, the, the most, you know, most of the people who are frequenting the tanning beds are not the people who are having the issue to begin with. Most dermatologists and most people in the dermatology community, such as you guys, um, have, you know, have the, the feeling that you really shouldn't have to sacrifice your, your overall health your overall health and your skin health to increase your vitamin D. There are many other ways that you can increase your consumption, um, either with supplementation or with increasing foods, and it just isn't worth, uh, isn't worth the trade-off. The American Academy, because they uh, recommend such stringent sunscreen uh, practices, they recommend uh, a daily supplement of 1,000 IUs of vitamin D. So teenagers, uh, even if they're not talking to their providers about tanning and about um, sunscreens and, and uh, UV exposure, they're talking to somebody. Unfortunately, they're talking to their friends, and they're talking to the guy behind the counter at the tanning booth, the tanning salon, and they're getting a ton of misinformation. Uh, let's see, I just wanna scroll down on my slide here because I want to read something verbatim. Uh, so, if you Google, if you Google tanning and tanning salons, um, and you look on the, the the websites for these places, there there are some regulations about what they can and can't say. So they can they cannot say on their website that tanning is good for your health. So there are recommendations for that. But what they can do is they can forward you on to places like the International Smart Tan Network, which isn't trying to sell tanning. It's not trying to get you to come to their salon so they're less regulated. And they can say whatever they want. And they can say things like, uh, 
Every year, millions of indoor tanners successfully develop base tans before embarking on sunny vacations, tans that help prevent sunburn. And then if you read down further into the fine print, it says that this is when tanning is combined with the proper use of sunscreen outdoors. Uh, let's see. They also refer to their golden rule of tanning, um, which is that um, you never get a sunburn. Clearly, with 700 ER visits annually, 61% of parents in that study reporting a burn from tanning, I mean, it's just not happening. They're, they're not living up to their golden rule, which, which they, they won't really acknowledge. So tanning alternatives. They've, they've been bad, but they're getting better. Uh, so home tanners have been around since the 1960s, and they, they did used to be really very bad. They were stinky, they turned you orange, they were difficult to apply, they didn't last very long. They, they weren't worth the time, basically. But they're getting better. Products containing uh, DHA, or dihydroxyacetone, is the most effective uh, for home tanning, for sunless tanning products. Uh, it causes a chemical reaction with amino acids in the stratum corneum to change color, basically. It's non-toxic, it's non-carcinogenic, it's available in all kinds of different formulations, wipes, sprays, creams, lotions, mousses, whatever you can think of, they have made it uh, with DHA. The effect is temporary, it lasts three to 10 days. Um, you can ramp your way up, you can maintain, um, you can use it just for a short time and it goes away. Some products combine it with erythrulose, uh, I have a hard time with that word, erythrulose, um, which gives a similar color change but takes a little bit longer to take effect. And it also lasts a little bit longer, so that's intended to uh, increase the duration of a self-tanning product. Tyrosine, canthazanthin, and afamilanotide uh, have also been either trialed or studied. Some of them have been found to be carcinogenic. Some of them are still in trials now, but none of those are really very good uh, at this time for, for self-tanning, for non-UV tanning. There are definitely some tricks that are important to know uh, for sunless tanning. Uh, it's really easy to make mistakes, uh, and your patients will make mistakes, and they'll hate their sunless tanner unless you help them out and tell them, and tell them how to use them better. Uh, it's important to, dry, to apply it to dry and clean skin. You should allow four to six hours before bathing, otherwise your effect uh, is not going to be uh, as, uh, as even. It's also not going to be as long. You tend to get streaking of pigment and uh, more pigment over areas of thicker skin. That's a really big pitfall, so over the elbows and certainly over the palms and soles, um, you will be a color that you don't want to be um, unless you uh, apply a barrier such as Vaseline or a really heavy cream. Over those areas, you still get some absorption, enough absorption to make your skin tone, your, your base, or your uh, pardon me, your tan, even, but not so much that you uh, are uneven. Sunless tanning in the salon um, is also um, getting to be a much better option. You really have to sort of know what you're doing before you go in because the process is so fast that it's really easy to make mistakes, and when you make a mistake in the, the spray tan booth, it's on a much bigger area of your body. You can't really test out, you know, test out a thigh or a shin, it's kind of all or nothing. Um, 
like any product, um, you want to test out either a home tanner or a spray tanner uh, on an area of your body before you do, uh, before you do the, the whole application. It's important in the, in the spray tanning bed to wear goggles. Uh, this lady is a bad example. Um, it's also important to hold your breath, which she doesn't appear to be doing because she's smiling. Um, it tastes pretty nasty, um, so it, it really is a good thing to keep your mouth closed. Um, there are often drips on the body after you get out, so you can towel them off. You can sort of pat yourself. Um, in the spray tanning booth as well, you want to use uh, a heavy creamer and ointment over those high absorption areas to avoid, um, to avoid any problems. People will talk about um, when they use self-tanner that it will stain their sheets. And that's true of if they, I should say their sheets or their clothing, stuff like that. Um, and that's true if you get the actual self-tanner onto the, the fabric. But once, uh, once you've, you've washed, you've bathed after your application, the shed skin cells don't actually um, stain or, or tan anything. Um, so they, it shouldn't be a problem after they've bathed. They don't always tell you this when you go to the, the spray tanning salon, but there are, you can have it sprayed on with a color right away or not with a color right away. And it's important to know which one you want because sometimes they won't ask you. There are also different shade levels and it's really important to start with the lightest shade level and see what it does for you. See if you want to go, go darker or not because uh, you would much rather make a mistake with the lighter shade than a darker shade. If you make a mistake, if someone makes a mistake, you can exfoliate uh, with lemon juice um, or baking soda for really bigger problems. Um, a chlorinated pool with some exfoliation after can at least help you even out some of the problem areas. I always tell people two things about spray tanning. Don't ever, ever do it, or, or home tanning. Don't ever, ever do it before a really important event because um, you will almost certainly make it, you, you will almost certainly make a mistake uh, and not be happy with your experience and then they'll never try it again. And I also tell, uh, tell providers that, you know, if you try this, it makes it much easier to describe to your patients. Uh, I was a total fool in the spray tan booth when I went to try it for the first time. It took, I mean, it took more than, it probably took three or four times before I was actually any good at it. Um, and I mean, I don't, I don't do it as a regular habit, but I wanted to do it until I got good enough at it. And it, I mean, it took three or four times. Uh, some of the first ones were, were bad. Um, so what should we learn from all of this uh, talk about tanning? We should really all be working for our Girl Scout sun safety badge. Um, it's an avoidable risk factor for melanoma and skin cancers. We need to ed educate ourselves so that we can educate our patients and our parents um, about it. They're talking to somebody, if they can talk to us, they're going to get much better information. But if we don't know anything about alternatives, if we don't know anything about what they're actually reading and the information that they're getting from other sources, then we're not as much help to them as we could be. So we'll sort of transition at this uh, point to tattoos and piercings. Um, the guy in this picture might not be the best representation of who uh, you're going to normally see in clinic, but I'll tell you that the rest of the pictures in the presentation walked into somebody's office, um, and so you're definitely going to see you're definitely going to see this stuff. So there are health risks associated with tattoos and piercings, body adornment. Um, a lot of them are things that that you would think of. Some of them are things that you wouldn't. 
tattoo. The word tattoo comes from Polynesian for ta, which means paint, and tua, which means spirit. It's been happening for over 8,000 years, uh, but it's lately been increasing in popularity in Western cultures. Almost 10% of teenagers have tattoos, uh, and 25% of 18 to 30-year-olds. It's more common in women uh, to have tattoos, and almost 65% of patients with tattoos are women. So tattoos can be broken down into a couple different categories. Amateur tattoos are usually inks or carbons. They're usually blue or black. They're poked or injected into the skin with a needle or something like that. Uh, professional tattoos use sort of an inkjet uh, uh, kind of device, and it's manufactured ink pigments. They used to use inorganic salts, but there's some toxicity associated with that, so uh, they switched. Uh, uh, to manufactured pigments, uh, and then temporary t uh, tattoos such as henna, which is also increasing in popularity. This is just a diagram of uh, where this tattoo ink is placed in the skin uh, in a normal tattoo process, so just, just on the undersurface of the epidermis. There are a lot of different kinds of tattoo reactions uh, that can happen, and we're going to go through most of these. Um, I just want to point out that uh, photoallergic reactions, because I, I don't have a picture of that one, uh, are usually caused by uh, cadmium, which is a yellow pigment. We always remember this because yellow, like the sun, is what gives you a, a photoallergic reaction. So allergic tattoo reactions are most commonly uh, happening in areas of red tattoo pigment, which comes from mercury uh, sulfate, pardon me, mercury sulfide or cinnabar. Uh, those are the pigments. Uh, it's also been reported within other, uh, other color areas, but a lot of times the other color areas have red in the mix, so it a lot of times actually comes down to the red. Onset is usually pretty acute. They're really itchy. They can blister. They're really very uncomfortable. Um, and this shows a pretty pronounced uh, tattoo reaction, which is clearly within that, that red, pig, red pigment zone. This was an allergic reaction to a black pigment. You can kind of make out the tribal armband pattern uh, of the reaction. Uh, I, think there's a, I think there's probably some keloid formation uh, in this one because it, it wasn't as acute uh, of a reaction. Uh, this is a, a really interesting picture, I thought, because the red of the strawberries was actually spared and the allergic part was in the, uh, the blue-green pigment around. So it can happen in areas other than red. Granulomatous tattoo reactions is another class of, of tattoo reactions. They can be sarcoidal, they can be uh, other kind of foreign body granulomas or even allergic granulomas. It's really a histologic difference uh, in, in uh, telling those apart. It doesn't really change, uh, for the most part, what it looks like on the skin or what you're going to do about it. They're usually delayed in onset. They're not usually as uncomfortable, kind of uh, red-brown uh, nodules and papules within the, uh, within the tattoo. Oh, I should say, this, uh, this picture was a, a sarcoidal uh, granuloma, and it occurred many years after the tattoo was placed in this woman. This is another sarcoidal granuloma uh, that formed uh, multiple years after tattoo placement. This reaction is an allergic reaction, uh, but it's an allergic granulomatous reaction, uh, which is probably to the color mix in the flowers.
this granulomatous reaction is probably from the, the red pigment in poor Wiley's face. Uh, Kebner reaction is another, uh, another pitfall of, of tattoos. As you guys know, it's a process of um, a skin disorder occurring in lines of trauma, which uh, sometimes is accidental and sometimes uh, has been uh, on purpose to the patient. Um, this is an example of Kebnerized psoriasis uh, in this relatively new tattoo. Uh, it's also been reported with lupus, lichen planus, and cutaneous infections uh, like flat warts. Um, it's a little bit hard to see because they're uh, kind of the same color as the skin around, but uh, this guy's got a whole bunch of flat warts uh, pretty much just in the tattoo area. Uh, it's also been reported with molluscum. Other infections, uh, both cutaneous and systemic, are reported with uh, tattooing. Um, staph infections can range from mild to serious, um, localized to, to generalized and even systemic. Ecthyma, erysipelas, gangrene, um, usually, they're from bad sanitation at the tattoo parlor or bad aftercare uh, at home. This uh, is an erosive uh, area within the tattoo that was related to staph infection. Uh, this was a more nodular staph infection that grew uh, MRSA. Um, this guy had uh, multiple nodules that were remote uh, from the area of tattoo, but the problem started within the tattooed area. There have been a lot of other infections over the course of history that have been uh, reported with tattooing. Mycobacterium, TB, syphilis, leprosy, chancroid. Uh, actually, there was a report of, um, I think, 30 cases in 2002 of leprosy uh, in India. So it still happens. It's still reported. Um, systemic uh, problems like HIV, hepatitis uh, are also reported. Uh, I tossed in a slide about adolescence and hep C. Um, it could have been a really easy slide um, because really the first bullet point um, is, is the main take-home point. Adolescents don't know anything about, about hep B. Um, they may or may not know that they even get vaccinated for it, but they certainly don't know how you get it, how you don't get it, um, and what the risk factors are. Um, in a questionnaire of more than 17,000 uh, adolescents and young adults, uh, they pretty much proved that they didn't know anything about it. Unfortunately, they also proved that they were doing a lot of risk-taking uh, behaviors that were those that can get you hep, uh, hepatitis. 90% of the adolescents in the survey either had a body piercing uh, or had one or more sexual partners in the last year. Uh, so they were, they were certainly um, doing things that could get you hepatitis. Uh, tattoo removal could be a, a whole talk in and of itself, so it's a little bit hard to get it into one slide, but uh, we'll say that there are a lot of different ways to get rid of tattoos. Um, none of them work terribly, terribly well, uh, and there are pitfalls to all of them. You can have scarring, dispigmentation, residual pigment. Um, when we use laser uh, for tattoo removal, we base the uh, choice of laser on the color of the pigment in the tattoo. Um, some tattoos uh, contain metal oxides uh, that, if they have exposure to a Q-switched laser, can actually uh, change color and leave a permanent pigment within the skin. So anyone who's having laser tattoo removal um, should have it from a reputable source of physician um, uh, or provider who, who knows, what they, knows what they're doing and, and you know, has not, uh, is not dabbling uh, in tattoo removal with laser. 
So temporary tattoos are most often uh, from henna. <coughs> they're relatively inexpensive. They're easy to find. You can get it at every state fair across the country. Um, it doesn't hurt when you have them applied. There are some pitfalls. Um, natural henna itself is, uh, is slow to darken, and so sometimes they add to it certain substances to help uh, speed the darkening process of the temporary tattoo. Paraphenylenediamine, PPD, is one of the things that they add. In fact, a black henna tattoo is really just a henna tattoo that has a lot of PPD um, uh, in the, the mix of it. Um, PPD is, is one of those things that's known to cause uh, a contact dermatitis in a fair number of patients. So most of the time, if someone's having a reaction to a henna tattoo, it's probably to the PPD component instead of the actual henna itself, but certainly could be from both. Uh, allergic reactions to henna tattoos, whether it's the PPD or the henna, are often acute. They're often blistering and crusting. They're really itchy. They can be treated with topical uh, potent corticosteroids. Uh, but the sensitization that you get uh, in the skin can translate to other areas of body. So if they were to some point later use a hair dye or something that had PPD in it, they could have a similar um, allergic reaction on the scalp to the one that, where they were sensitized with the tattoo. The reactions can sometimes be a little bit less acute looking, less blistering and more dermatitic appearing, such as this one, and they can take several days and weeks to evolve. Uh, this one is very pretty. Uh, it was also very itchy uh, and related to a, a temporary henna tattoo. Uh, this guy's allergic reaction to his tattoo uh, started well after the games were done. Uh, and if the reaction, if the inflammation is enough, you can have dispigmentation, you can even have scarring, just like anything that induces a, an allergic or inflammatory reaction in the skin. So we'll change gears a little bit to piercings. Um, piercings have definitely become mainstream. Uh, they're, they're all over the place. Um, there is certainly a link between body adornment uh, and risk-taking behaviors as well. Uh, well documented, it's been shown with both tattoos and piercings. Um, Risk-taking behaviors include sexual behaviors, alcohol and drug use, gambling, gang affiliation, school truancy, um, and there have even been a couple of studies showing a link between uh, patients with body adornment and higher rates of suicidal ideation and suicide attempt. There are lots of areas of the body, as you know, that can be pierced, um, such as the ears, the nose, lips, and chin. It's a little bit hard to see, but this spiky one down there is a separate one than the one in the lip. Uh, the eyebrows can be pierced, the tongue, the navel, and the nipples and genitalia. Um, the majority of the pictures of that kind of stuff was not really for the faint of heart, so I, I stopped with this one. Um, but suffice to say that everything can be pierced. Foreign body reactions are really pretty common. Um, they give you redness, edema at the site, um, uh, at the site such as this umbilical piercing. Um, they can be transient, they can be persistent, they can start months and even years after a piercing is placed, even if it's kept very clean. Sometimes the body just decides that it doesn't want it there anymore and it, and it makes a reaction. Um, the problem is that the redness can also indicate a local infection, and so if there's crusting, drainage, that kind of thing. 
Um, you have to sort of take that seriously. Um, uh, this patient in the picture declined to have her navel ring removed despite a persistent, uh, uncomfortable uh, reaction. Keloid formation is, is pretty commonly found in African-American patients, especially with piercings and tattoos. Uh, it can be really very disfiguring. Um, these pictures um, are of a boy that presented to my office. Um, from the top picture, which is clinically what I saw when he presented, I thought it was going to be um, a, uh, an infection that was secondary to a failed attempt at piercing his ear at home, which he, he admitted to. Um, but then um, during an, an IND of the area, um, it was actually a lodged earring back in, in the skin of the ear, which was causing both infection, um, but also a pretty, a pretty raring foreign body infection. Uh, pardon me, a foreign body reaction. So there are other kinds of foreign body art and, and body modification, such as foreign body uh, dermal implants, microdermal piercings, branding, scarification. Uh, dermal implants involve placement of metal shapes and objects uh, under the dermal layer of the skin. Um, I think it's important to note that um, places that perform this aren't allowed to have anesthesia, so all of this is done um, without, without any anesthesia. It's also, in theory, it's also uh, not legal to do this to someone uh, if they are under the influence of alcohol. So really, you know, they're, they're just tolerating this uh, happening to them. Microdermal piercings is a newer trend that uses smaller, uh, smaller anchors and smaller implants. Still no anesthesia, but unfortunately these are, because they're smaller, these are becoming um, more popular than the, the larger dermal implants. They do a small punch biopsy, uh, or they use a small punch biopsy tool in the skin to make an opening, and then they insert the metal anchor and they screw onto the anchor whatever type of jewel or adornment uh, they want. These are really common on the face, especially on the zygoma, kind of right around the eye. I mean, they, they get scarred down into the skin. They, they just don't think about the potential consequences because there's no way that you take that out and it looks like it wasn't there. Branding involves using cautery or a similar heated tool to actually sketch out and induce loss of the epidermis and dermis in that area. And then scarification is a little bit different than that. It just involves cutting of the skin uh, with a sharp tool to make a scarred effect. This is really unpredictable because everyone scars very differently and you, you're never quite sure what you're gonna get. Uh, so just a couple slides on grooming and then, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, so for the, you know, for the talk, grooming I took to mean uh, shaving and waxing. Uh, there are a lot of social pressures, um, both on adults and on teenagers and even on younger kids. Um, believe it or not, there's such a thing as a virgin bikini wax. Um, I found a website from a New York City-based salon that said, uh, virgin waxing for children eight years old and up who have never shaved before. Virgin hair can be waxed so successfully that growth can be permanently stopped in just two to six sessions. Save your child a lifetime of waxing and put the money in the bank for her college education instead. Yeah. The International Spa Association reports that 16% of teens who have visited a spa, um, pardon me, 16% of the patients 
going to their spa for hair removal services were teenagers. Um, and one salon owner um, reported that 20% of her bikini wax clients were 12 to 14 years old. And if you're asking yourself, why do the teenagers even care about grooming the bikini area? It's because they're bombarded with ridiculous fashion, uh, ridiculous uh, media and social pressures to try to conform and, and be older than they are. Unfortunately, they're, they're really often very unsophisticated in their waxing techniques and their shaving techniques, and they're embarrassed about it so they don't tell anyone, especially if there's a problem, they think they're gonna get in trouble because they still are just you know, kind of little kids. Um, and so a lot of times they don't present until there's uh, a bigger problem uh, than there should have been. Folliculitis from shaving and waxing, uh, as you guys know, ranges from small uh, pink papules to uh, large and widespread pustules, erosions, and vesicles. Uh, I certainly have had uh, some kids, some teenagers come into the office who were covered head to toe. They had been misdiagnosed as chicken pox and all kinds of things, and, and really it turned out once once you ask the right questions, um, that you know they had shaved and they had first noticed some spots, you know, by their bikini area or, or by their groin, because they're not uh, they're not all girls um, who are doing the uh, the shaving, um, and then they just never told anybody, and it got worse and worse. Uh, certainly, MRSA uh, is is present in some of these patients as well as that uh, increases in the in the uh, the general population. So in summary, um, adolescents, they really may not be aware of the potential consequences of what they're doing to themselves. Um, certainly not the near potential consequences, but definitely not the long-term down the road uh, consequences. We need to know what we're talking about. We need to know what they're talking about so that we can talk to them about it. And we really need to figure out how to be non-judgmental and have an open line of communication uh, to, avoid, uh, to avoid problems. That's all I've got. <laughs>